Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how companies that use disruption as an opportunity for innovation emerge from it stronger, while companies that merely attempt to weather the storm until things go back to normal will miss an opportunity to thrive. We will also discuss how transformation is not a project or a destination, but a continuous journey of adapting to a volatile and uncertain environment. I'm really excited to have Jerry Kane from Boston College on this show for the second time. Jerry is one of four authors of the upcoming book, The Transformation Myth, Leading Organizations Through Uncertain Times. This book draws on interviews and research with business leaders that offers a framework for understanding disruption and the tools for navigating it. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thank you, it's great to be back. First off, I wanna welcome you back to Banking Transform podcast. While it seems like just yesterday that we discussed your first book, The Technology Fallacy, an initial review of your upcoming book really takes off on that discussion to a new level, showing the importance of being agile, being receptive to change, and moving beyond the focus on technology alone. In your research since the pandemic, what did you find that reinforced your findings of the first book and what changed as we were thrown into a state of complete disruption? Yeah, well, in in part, the reason we chose to write the transformation myth, uh, so the titles, the transformation myth leading your organization through uncertain times or, or something to that effect. So I was teaching an executive education class at the University of Kentucky and University of Louisville about this time last year when the, you know, the wheels came off the bus uh, as far as COVID goes. And we actually had to pivot. We had our last session online, you know, that rapid shift to Zoom that everybody had to do. And the conclusion of the class at the end was, boy, a lot of the stuff in the book really applies to what we're living through right now. These, you know, we're going to need to live these lessons out. And we had actually had a pitch meeting set up with MIT Press for a follow-up book to the technology fallacy. We had planned to focus it on digital leadership or something like that. And in that meeting, we said, you know what? The lessons of the first book are really applying well to what many companies are dealing with. Let's go investigate it. Let's figure out what is it about our first book as well as what companies are dealing with. And so they said, great idea. We love it but it needs to be finished by October. And so this was in March. So we came up with the idea for the book, researched it, wrote it, and now we're in the process of publishing it. It won't be out till September because it's going through all the the publication stuff. But basically by December, we had that thing wrapped up and it was both an exciting and a terrifying experience uh, to be writing a book when you don't know how the story is going to end. And, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job positioning it and, and we really position it it uses COVID as a case study, but it's not about COVID. It's about disruption because we really found that that's the commonality between the first book and the second book is this theme of disruption and how you respond to disruption as a leader is similar in both situations. Now, you said what has gone away and been blown up. If anything, it's the thesis of the first book has been confirmed. Our thesis of the first book, which is the technology fallacy, that people are the real key to digital transformation, I think has played out because it's like the technology was there and just ready for people to adopt it. And that's what we've seen. As people have been scared for their jobs and scared for their livelihood and scared for their lives, they have been much more adaptable to change. And many organizations 
have seen this as a real opportunity to drive their business forward. So as everybody moved from a physical store to face-to-face engagement, it had it really, they were pushed into the digital environment, even if they didn't want to go. And even the remote work environment, how well do you think most organizations responded to the critical nature of the change from because of COVID? Yeah. And I'm reluctant to answer that question directly because our sample might be biased. Companies that were crashing and burning didn't want to talk to us. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's not much of a story to say, well, we stunk <laughs> at this. So I'm wary to say you know, what percentage or what, whether most. What I will say is I am surprised at how well many companies did shifting and many yeah. companies that I never would have thought of. My own institution itself, uh, Boston College, uh, and many higher ed institutions. I've been talking for 15 years about the benefits of you know, hybrid education, the ability to use digital technology to drive the classroom forward and rethink it in different ways. And nobody has ever paid attention to me because it was just easy to keep up. Why change? And COVID came along and said, you must change. And I'm really stunned at how well many organizations pivoted when they absolutely had to. I was stunned at how well basically the cloud infrastructure held up you know there was some question could zoom you know manage the volume that was going to turn on the minute school started using it and they by and large handled it without batting an eye now some of that is as i've done my research is just knowing how robust the cloud infrastructure is you know google for instance has enough uh, computing power to run the the entire internet eight times over. And it's just like, that is a massive amount. And and there are reasons for that for for security and denial of service attacks. But they've been ready. And I've just been stunned at how well this whole thing has gone, quite frankly, because, and we were discussing in my class the other night, if this had happened 10 years ago, we would not be in nearly as good of a position societally, business-wise, infrastructure, mental health yeah. as we are today. It's interesting because it, it's not defined by the size of organization. I, I think I've mentioned it before in the podcast where I'm amazed how small businesses pivoted both digitally and organizationally. So for instance, mm-hmm. you know, you can look at restaurants. Some restaurants yeah. took this as a massive opportunity. They weren't sure where to go. I mean, there's no playbook for big organizations or small, but we have a restaurant locally that basically pivoted to the point where instead of having a menu offered, they offered Mm -hmm. a nightly meal, a family meal, a meal for four that you could order and it would change every night, but it made it so that they could keep people employed, but not have so many people with random things going on. And eventually they expanded to saying, you can also order off the menu, but initially they weren't a takeout restaurant. They were simply a dine-in restaurant. You also yep. can notice them because they had two of the most elaborate tents outside their business that they kept going throughout the entire process. So, you know, you, you see these amazing stories. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, you see a lot of organizations that just did not have the skill power or the willpower to proceed as normal. And, and mostly the small organization, which is terrible. But you look and you go, gosh, you know, it's interesting because when we last talked, the business environment overall and the economic outlook really couldn't have been better. I mean, when you we think about mm-hmm. it, everything was going smooth as silk. Business were doing well. Consultancies were thriving. Today, 
there's a great deal more uncertainty. Does this change the sense of urgency to invest in digital transformation? And is there a potential that organizations may hold back and try to conserve capital? Well, that's really one of the uh, key theses of the book. And before I do so, let's take a step back. You know, what we found, which I know intuitively, but I was still surprised to the extent of it, for many organizations, COVID was a huge opportunity. So we say it's uncertainty. Some of the uncertainty is we've had a number of organizations that have just seen massive growth in response. Instacart, you know, was sort oh, of yeah. a, which just wasn't a household word a year ago. And now they've grown massive amounts. Any cloud-based services have been doubling, tripling, quadrupling in size. Amazon, which was already a behemoth, has only gotten better. You know, Zoom wasn't a word. Now it's a, a, an adjective, you know, it's a, I want to zoom multiple adjectives off off of it. Um, And so we interviewed Marriott Hilton travel and they saw a 90% drop off in demand overnight. But then you see many of the tech companies see a super boom. Uh, Restaurant industry was one. We interviewed a company called Olo, which is an online ordering platform. And they saw just massive amounts of companies adopting their platform because they had to switch to delivery and they needed a, a way to do it. But the theme of our book, this was not the operating hypothesis that I had going into when we made that pitch meeting in March, but I'm convinced of it now, is that companies that thrive are those that innovate through disruption. Many companies have, as far as a digital transformation perspective, have seen this as a massive opportunity to drive through changes they've wanted to do for years. And so I really think it would be a mistake for companies to hold back now because what's going to happen? I actually think, and and this is the, the epilogue of our book. We actually had the opportunity to write the epilogue in December. So we said, can you give us a little bit more time just to find out how the story, a little more about the story. And if you think about what happened between October and December, we got vaccines, which in October, we didn't know. We had a presidential election in the US, which changed things there. We've had so much disruption between October and December that one, we say that's the nature of our book is disruption is ongoing. It may be COVID. It may be Black Lives Matter. It may be whatever, but disruption is the new normal. And so we actually think that the vaccines are going to be as big or a bigger disruption than COVID was to begin with. Because what you've had over the last year is many companies innovating in in the entrepreneurial literature, what we'll call stealth mode. They've been ramping up new capabilities and figuring out new ways to compete. When we get back to September, 2021, it is going to be off to the races as companies are doubling down on their strategies, are really using it as a time to drive innovation forward. And those who are stepping back and saying, okay, let's wait, let's wait till we go back to normal. That old normal is never going to happen. And so it's only companies that innovate through disruption, that you know, find new ways to drive it forward. So if there's one lesson, it's don't wait for you know, January 2020 to come back because it's not. And bright side, and this is why I wanted to talk to you six months before my book is published, is this is the thing that executives need to be thinking about now. What is fall going to look like? Because COVID, we didn't see coming. This next disruption you can see coming. We have a timeline. You know, President Biden gave a speech last night where he's saying, you know, Fourth of July should be semi-normal, fall should be relatively normal. You know, get ready for that and start planning now for those innovations because I, I just think there's so much 
disruption still coming. Uh, we can talk about that in a second. I, I, I keep learning yeah. about new things as we go back to the office. Well, it's interesting, too, because when you talk about, you know, what's caused a lot of this, the consumer was forced, as well as businesses, to completely shut down and to go completely digital. For those older households that had never used Zoom or FaceTime, who had never deposited a check with a photo, had never not gone to the branch to do anything. Now, all of a sudden, everything changed. And as time went on, as you mentioned about Instacart, all kinds of activities changed. They all of a sudden realized that not only does Instacart deliver food, but they help prompt you as to what food you may want based on your habits that you bought over the past, very much like Amazon does, where all of a sudden Zoom becomes a way of communicating. But a lot of financial institutions never had any outside platforms where communication could be virtual. The consumer also got used to Netflix and Spotify that made recommendations based on previous behavior. So immediately what we found in our research is when we asked about what's your digital transformation maturity, not only was it still low, but it actually had gone down between 2019 and 2020. And the reason was, is because what they related to was at a much higher level. So the tide mm -hmm. rose. And so yep. while they got better, they were more underwater, for lack of a better term. Yep. And that happened when we asked about innovation maturity. It happened when we talked about data maturity. And as I mentioned about digital transformation maturity, that the consumer is driving the change. And the consumer, by the way, as you mentioned, is not going to go back to saying, okay, now I don't have to do this anymore. They have enough time to get used to it. If this was a three or four month event, it'd be different, but they're going to move from here. And as you said, as the doors are opened and they can learn to do more and realize how cool it is to try this new aspect or this new aspect. Because at the end of the day, the one thing that didn't change is the number of hours in the day. Right. And now that the consumer can say, I can do all these things at once, I think they're going to be looking for partners that are going to help them make their day more efficient. Is that yeah. pretty much what you found as well, I think? Yeah, a couple of things on that. First is we have a whole chapter on customers and habits. Um, you know, one of my co-authors is a marketing professor at Northwestern and former CMO of Deloitte. And, you know, he is a big fan of sort of a lot of customer relationship is about habit. And what happened with COVID is it completely disrupted the old habits. And it really was an opportunity for customers to try out new things, whether it's depositing a check online, whether it's DoorDash, whether it's Instacart. Now that those habits are in place, I tried for years to get my wife to do Instacart because I just saw her wasting so much time going to the grocery store. She will never step foot in a grocery store again, or at least not in the same like I have to go every week or twice a week. Maybe she'll go for special occasions. That habit is forever disrupted. On the other hand, we were talking about restaurants a little while ago. I asked my class the other night, are you going to go back to restaurants? And the number of heads that nodded yes were stat, you know, it's, there's also the pent up. We haven't been able to do these these things for a long time. My interview at Brian King at Marriott, he called it revenge travel. So I think you're going to see a lot of revenge travel, a lot of revenge <laughs> dining coming up, and which is another, again, another disruption. And it's going to be really hard to get back to that new normal because we're disrupted. And this is going to disrupt things forever going forward. The other thing you touched on was I, I really like your observation 
that although companies have progressed digitally, their perceptions is they're farther behind because everybody else is moving faster. Uh, and that's actually something we talk about in the technology fallacy. We predicted it, that that was going to happen. So it's important to note from a digital perspective, your competition is not the other companies in your industry. Your competition is the Netflix, is the Spotify's, is the Facebook's, is the Amazon's, because that's what customers have come to expect that a good digital experience will look like. And that's what they're going to compare you to. Now, then there's the, oh God, we can't be Amazon. We can't be Facebook. We can't be Google. But the tools now are much more robust than ever before. You know, I think cloud computing and software as a service is going to be the MVPs of COVID because you can really get access to, you know, world-class software that is secure through these platforms. And we, in the book, we talk about them as, as Lego blocks. And you can yeah. just assemble the Lego blocks of the tools you need. Don't go reinvent a digital experience from the ground up. And in fact, if you've yeah. waited this long, that might be a good thing because let's get into the cloud. Let's get these up to speed so we don't have these legacy problems going forward. And that I think is going to be, uh, my hope is that is something many leaders are waking up to right now. It's interesting you, you mentioned it that, you know, all these wake up calls along the way. But I think, you know, when you look at, what you just described and the, the new experiences. You know, those organizations that thought that digital was a checkbox, that, mm-hmm. oh, we now enable our customers to do what they did before digitally, they're missing the call. Because what, yep. what we found in our research is most financial institutions, their new account opening, their digital loan process takes still between 10 and 12 minutes on average across the industry. Yet, I can open the Apple credit card in less than a minute, actually, it's four yep. screens. Or that a consumer says, you know what, why is my financial institution not telling me that I should be transferring money between checking and savings like Acorn does? Yep. Or why is my buying experience not feel as good as when I get like Uber Eats delivers my meals? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting how new players, and it's interesting when we start digging deeper, and it's the same thing you saw in your first book, is that, well, the CEO of Lemonade, I, I reference him often because he said to me, mm-hmm. the biggest hurdle to digital transformation is legacy leadership. Mm-hmm. And when we talk to solution providers that truly, as you mentioned, open the door to opportunity where you can quickly make yourself a digital organization if you partner with those that have already gone down this path for other organizations and can get you there quicker. There's no reason to build it internally. It, there's just none. But when you look at that, do you still see that, you know, the one underlying problem between the success and failures is really at the top? I wouldn't say it's the one, because in (laughs) fact, there are plenty of problems. And in fact, a lot, uh, occasionally what we've seen is the real problem is middle management. You've got senior leadership who really want to drive change, who are open to it, but that requires pushing decision-making down into the organization and the middle managers are reluctant to step up and make those decisions because you don't get fired if you don't have to make decisions that are consequential. A great book that I read over the pandemic is Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams. You know, I just thought that what we were doing with the technology fallacy was, you know, was about digital, really. And as I read McChrystal's Team of Teams, it's really about agility and to respond to changing conditions on the ground. And he talks about the need to change 
the entire, you know, the way basically the U.S. military functioned to deal with such a fast-moving adversary like ISIS. And it really required them to fundamentally rethink and empower the lower level leaders to make decisions because by the time they asked for his permission, the situation was gone. And so you had to move away from that command and control to, he has a really nice metaphor of, of leadership as gardening. And so you're te- you can't make plants grow. You can only tend them so that they can be as healthy and robust as they can possibly be. And I think that's what digital leadership is, is becoming, is how do you create an environment where these lower level leaders can really step up and play a, a, a vibrant role in your organization. Now that really does require leadership from the top because it requires, you can't have, it can't be hurting cats. You have to have strong communication of what direction the organization's going so that these lower level managers can make the right decision. So it's really ups the game on communication and it really ups the game on risk tolerance. I, I crack on the old Six Sigma methodology often in my talks because Six Sigma, you know, that was like the, the mantra of the 90s. Yeah. That's great in a stable environment. It's really terrible in an environment of disruption because in disruption, I think this is something that uh, I think COVID has shown. You have to be free to experiment. You have to be free to fail within reason, you have to be free to learn because you don't know what the environment is. And that experimentation and risk tolerance is one of those huge mindset shifts that really differentiate legacy leadership from digital leadership, that it's not about always knowing the right answer. It's about trying things until you can figure out what the right answer is and being transparent about that. Uh, The last thing I'll say as far as COVID that I've heard in multiple places has been the the rise of authenticity amongst senior leadership. And that's something I hope we don't give. And many people say, I hope we don't give up, that we've been able to talk with each other, to each other, as senior people, as, you know, co- as, as remote, you know, everybody's beaming into their houses, you know, a new sense of authenticity that many people have really embraced. And I hope that stays. And I think many of the most successful leaders over the last year have been those that can be authentic. You know, it's interesting you talk about the leadership and the middle level leadership. One thing we found also in our research is that those organizations that don't engage their middle managers and their employees overall in what they're trying to do digitally, they forget the fact that those middle managers and those employees that are customer facing are in fear of their jobs. And so whatever mission you put in place if you don't involve them in the process and make them aware of what their role will be going forward, they will do everything possible to undermine your mission because they're fearful of their own personal future. And yep. we forget about the fact that, you know, this is what's happened in retail, that, that you know, people in the retail stores thought, geez, if digital comes, I am gone. Well, those organizations that have made those people part of the process have helped them engage with customers after they've bought something or after they've opened a new account. Those that have actually involved them and helped train those people to the next level realize mm-hmm. they not only keep the employees longer, but they're bought into the culture. I mean, Amazon investing so much money in the technology training of their employees it's got a long-term view in place because they realize their ability to get employees in the future is going to get more and more difficult, really skilled employees. So they might as well build that from the foundation up with their own people that have already bought into 
Amazon as a brand. So we're going to take a small break right now and recognize the sponsors of the podcast. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience. And you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation. If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey, trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit microsoft.com slash financial services. Welcome back to Banking Transform. So I am joined today by Jerry Kane, professor at Boston College and author of the best-selling book, The Technology Fallacy, How People Are the Real Key to Digital Transformation, as well as an upcoming book, The Transformation Myth, Leading Your Company Through Uncertain Times. So one of the core theses of your book, as you mentioned earlier, is that disruption of all types is a new normal for business and companies must respond to rapid innovation. We found in our research that there's a correlation between an organization's digital transformation maturity and their innovation and data maturity. Have you seen that organizations overall that succeeded innovation or data and analytics really impacts the success of transformation in general? Absolutely, because it goes back to this theme that it's not about digital, it's about disruption. Um, What better way to manage in an uncertain environment than to have good data about it. If you don't know what's going to happen, listen real carefully, Uh, pay attention to the trends. And those that have strong data analytics can sort of pick up on these trends at a much earlier stage and pick up on trends that you might otherwise miss. And so if you do have strong analytics and do have strong data collection, you know, a great example is the travel industry and airlines. You know, they have been paying very close attention to demand data to see where they can start introducing new capacity and where they need to keep pulling capacity back as unpredictable. Who knows when and how demand's going to come back? And so they just ha- the only solution is to, to analyze it, to study it, to figure it out. And that figuring it out also leads to innovation. So you can go to, you know, paralysis by analysis. So you can't get so caught up in the data that you're afraid to make decisions, but you can use the data to really help drive those decisions forward, including decisions about innovation. And so I would say they're just two sides of the same coin. Well, it's interesting, as you mentioned this in your first book too, it, 
the data side of everything and the information side, we we tend to internalize it. So we, we get data and we get insights and we use them internally. But really, the pandemic really illustrated the importance of exposing those data and insights to the consumer to say, by the way, this is how we're helping you. And the sharing of these types of insights with employees and make sure that everybody knows how can we help this consumer along the customer journey becomes even more important. And, and I think that, you know, when we look at data analytics and we look at the personalization, which certainly has increased the desire for consumers to have a more personalized experience, what have you seen in the marketplace as to how organizations have, have done a better job or maybe haven't done a better job on really personalizing the experience to the degree where the consumer feels comfortable with you using their data because there's a good value transfer? Yeah, I'm an, a technology professor, so I'll use my you know technology sort of field as a, a touchstone. Ten years ago, the attitude toward data was suck up as much of it as you can figure out what to do with it later. And eventually that got to the point where people were starting to get really creeped out by that. It's like, how, why, what gives you the right? And you're starting to see a much more awareness ahead of time of what data should we collect? How are we going to use it to benefit the customer? You know, just recently you've seen Google stop collecting data on, you know, what websites you visited in the past for, for advertising purposes. You know, we don't know why. I don't have a definitive reason why, but my suspicion is they're just realizing it's not as valuable for the privacy trade-off that most people have to make. Um, because most people are more than happy to share their data with companies provided it helps them in some way. If they're getting a benefit from it, they're much more likely to share. If you're taking their data with providing no benefit back to the customer, customers get very uh, upset by that. Well, it's interesting. When you look at you look at Amazon, people don't com complain about all the data they collect and how they use it. Why? In fact, people are paying for the right for them to do that. And, and it's interesting because as long as you make my shopping experience more seamless and easier, yep. I'm, I'm good with that. Plus, they don't seem to put their, your data at risk. I mean, we'd probably tolerate a, a breach of some nature with Amazon because they built so much strong legacy brand yep. in that. But, but it's interesting because I tell financial institutions, guys, it's all about how you use it. If you're collecting it for internal reports and don't ever show the consumer how it benefits them, they're going to cut that off. And oh, by the way, that ability to cut it off can be made easier and easier by government regulation. And we have, I mean, just to take this to the absurd extreme level, I have allowed Amazon to have a microphone on in every room of my house all the time and listen to me. I mean, how creepy is that? But for me to be able to say, Alexa, run a timer, what's the temperature outside, uh, order this from Amazon, you know, without having to go to a computer. And, you know, back when I could travel, when I was in a hotel room, I found myself saying, Alexa, you know, I didn't even have anything there. And I'm talking <laughs> have, to myself yeah, and I'm mad right. when they don't respond. So I have enabled like a huge amount of invasion of my privacy because the service is valuable to me. And it's going to be different for every person. You know, for instance, I'm the same way. I have nothing I'm hiding. So I have no problem with that. In fact, I love to see how it's used for my benefit. Sometimes I go, oh, it's a little strange. But, you know, Disney found with the family bands that the ability for a talking character to address your child by name simply by being close to them, it freaked out the parents 
until they saw the reaction of their kid's face and they oh, go, the oh, I'm it. good with that. You know, I'm totally yeah, good with that. <laughs> we know? had that same experience with my son. We were we were one of the first Magic Band users yeah. and we were in line for one of the rides and the, the we scanned to go in. He said, Connor, have a great time. And he just thought that was the best thing ever. Yeah, it's amazing how the freaked out nature of us completely dissolves when we say, yep. oh, there was a good experience here. You know, you know, we haven't taken a look at this, but but when you look at the impact of the pandemic, we, we certainly can't ignore the changes that occurred in the workplaces. Works were sent home, collaboration yep. on major tasks had to occur via digital meetings, and the concept of digital care became an instant requirement. How do you envision customer care, but also more importantly, the workplace to change in a post-pandemic world? I think that is still an open question, and I think nobody has any idea, and I say this as somebody who studied it extensively. A great example here is I was on an interview with a company the other day, and this is a company that a year ago had 20 employees and now has 90. They were all co-located before. As they have grown, they have taken advantage of the ability to hire from wherever and have hired now a globally or geographically diverse workforce. Yeah. And so one of the employees, a 20-something, really wants to go back to the office. The CEO is like, how do I bring him back to the office when now my workforce looks entirely differently than it did before? I can't have, I don't want like a insider, outsider culture bringing him back to the office. Another phenomena, this person will remain nameless, works for a company. And when the pandemic hit, they just moved. You know, they moved to where their friends and family were. They moved to Colorado to go skiing. So many of the workforces, even if you, they were co-located at the beginning, now are in very different places. And so how do you bring that back to the workplace? Um, now, I do. So I think we're going to see some really innovative models. One of the things I've been toying with in my own head is companies that are quote unquote virtual all the time, but get together for three days every month or a week every quarter uh, in a co-located place and and choose a different destination. So you get that combination of in-person interaction plus the efficiency of remote work and the flexibility of remote work. I think we're going to start seeing all sorts of it's going to be the Cambrian explosion of organizational forms because and educational forms because absolutely. now those organizations, those educational organizations that found that they could deliver digitally quite well, and some students actually do better in that environment because maybe they have a work yep. issue that I need to work on the moments that I'm not going to school so I can go to school. You know, we're going to see a lot of change in the models and it it's not going to yep. be the way we're we're arguing now in an on-off world. I mean, it's right. either all this or all that. The reality is it's not the same model that's going to work for everybody. Because we've also seen and I'm in education where, you know, students have said, "Oh, thank God, I am so thrilled to be back in a classroom." Yeah. And actually sort of in this learning environment. I'm never one of my students said, "I'm never going to take the classroom for granted again." Because there is some value in in-person learning. There's also some bad in-person. You know, when we go back to the office, we just did a Sloan Management Review article on this that comes out of the new book. What are the things that 
co-located work is really good for. It's really good for building culture. It's really good for onboarding employees. It's really good for developing new ideas and brainstorming. It's very good for serendipitous connections, relationships and conversations you wouldn't have otherwise, which are incredibly valuable sources of information. I completely disagree with anybody that says we are going to be all virtual all the time going forward. It's just not feasible. Even the gig workers that have very advanced skill sets, but you don't need them 40 hours a week, the ability to connect with them and have them work with many different clients at the same time, bringing their skill sets, that wasn't even considered because everybody right. was worried, oh, I'm not going to get my work out of the person. Well, we very yep. quickly realized it's really about deliverables and not how many hours you work because yeah, and Lord knows with kids at home, you weren't able to determine what those hours were going to be. And then also has been blown out of the water this idea that, oh, you can't be productive. We can't be efficient. We can't be if, if we're remote. This last year has thrown that for the lie that it has been. Uh, I was going to use a different word, but we're yeah. on a family-friendly broadcast. We're more efficient. In fact, many people we interviewed said their company was more productive working from home because when you don't have to commute, you don't have the interruptions and you don't have da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you have more meetings, but they're shorter because there's no startup costs. Everybody just shows up on Zoom and then right. shuts down Zoom. I did in three consecutive days a talk in Mexico City, a talk in India, and a talk in Illinois, and then in Indonesia. I physically could not have made that happen right. in a co-located environment. And so it's only via Zoom can I be that flexible uh, and that nimble. And so there are just so many opportunities. And, and the real challenge is going to be how do we put this back together in a coherent and meaningful way. And I think we will, but those who are going to succeed are the, those who are going to sit down and say, hmm, what have we learned over the past year? What are the best things we want to keep about what happened? And what do we like better about what happened before? And how do we keep the best of that yeah. to create a work environment going forward that's the, the, the best of both worlds? So Jerry, as, as our last question, I don't want to get away without digging a little bit deeper into your new book. You did a number of interviews, and that's the foundation upon the new book. And can you bring up to, for our audience a little bit about, I guess, the one or two experiences or interviews you had that maybe surprised you a bit? I mean, when you talk about some of these big organizations, you go, yeah, I kind of expect them to pivot accordingly. But even some of the big organizations, as you Mary mentioned, the, the hospitality industry and other ones yep. got caught off guard. But there's also small ones that became superstars. What are a couple of stories that, that you're going to bring out in the book that, that are interesting? I'll give you three. How about that? Because okay, um, I can't, it's like picking my favorite. And these interviews picking your favorite fascinating. Kid. Yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. And incidentally, if you go to my website, www.profkane.com, P-R-O-F-K-A-N-E, we've actually been publishing our interviews as a series in the Wall Street Journal. And so we, there was just so much good stuff that we couldn't fit all in the book. And so we're doing separate profiles and leadership. And I've actually been very inspired by the leaders we've been able to talk to. Just really authentic, bold, meaningful leadership through this time, which has been amazing. So the three examples, first is Hilton, suffered a 90% drop off in demand. They knew they were going to have to lay people off. Every, the employees knew they were getting laid off. So what they did was they took their recruiting platform and reversed it. And they went to companies that were having increased demand, the Amazons, the grocery stores, 
et cetera, et cetera. And they created a funnel for Hilton employees to go join these companies. Uh, they placed like, a, it, it says it in the interview, like a, a million and a half jobs, oh uh, or at least a million and a half were, were listed that way. The Amazons got skilled employees. That was like, they had the Hilton seal of approval. Hilton treated their employees, they got to land on their feet. Employees ended up with a good job and with good feelings towards Hilton because they were able to pull this off. And many have now that demand is ramping back up are coming back to Hilton. And so just an amazing story of being able, and they did that in a couple of weeks. So just really amazing opportunity there. Marriott did a slightly different one. They took their entire call center and went to work with the state of New York to handle the 100 times increase in undeployment claims. They just took and retrained those employees, they had the digital infrastructure set up and they just switched to switched and now they're doing unemployment stuff. Last but not least was Hitachi. So they have a bunch of factories. So in these factories, they have sensors, they have detectors, they have all sorts of sensing equipment. Over the course of about two weeks, they went in, redeveloped a new AI algorithm for the sensor network and were able to begin monitoring employee distance from social distancing. Um, they were able to actually monitor employee body temperature to see if anybody was starting to develop a fever. And they could turn this factory just by updating the software now into a social distance monitoring and see where the bottlenecks happened in the system to be able to get the factories up and running in a safe way. And if you think about when you have this digital infrastructure in place, you can redeploy it in ways with just a software patch and enable you to sort of update your abilities and your capabilities like that as needed. And that's one of the most remarkable things about having a robust digital infrastructure. The Hiltons that could sort of redeploy its workforce in a matter of weeks by changing a, a software platform and creating some partners with organizations that were in need. And that stories like that are those that I just I'm really amazed by. And if you're waiting, and it never would have happened if it weren't for COVID, because you know nobody would ever move that quickly unless there's an existential threat to them or their employees or people they care about. And again, I just go back to the fact that I've just had a number of interviews with people and almost to the person, I walked away learning something and just being really in admiration of their leadership. I, I'm prepared to call this the golden age of business leadership because I think our business leaders have really stepped up to do a remarkable, and, and in some cases, not to get political, where political leaders of, of all stripes failed to step up. And so I really think it's an amazing time. I think our business leaders have come across really well. And yet I think the biggest challenge lie ahead that in some ways COVID was easy because we had to deal with it. it we, we had to sort of figure it out. The real, the, the next challenge of leadership is September, 2021, as companies are figuring out, do we move forward or do we go back to the old ways? And I, and I firmly believe that those that just choose to go to the back to the old ways are not going to be long for this world. And we really need to use this as an opportunity to figure out how to lead 21st century, truly 21st century organizations going forward. It's great, Jerry, because again, it reinforces the context of your first book that it's not the back office technology, it's the way you deploy it, it's the leadership you have, it's speed and agility, it's innovation, it's these I'm not going to call them soft skills, 
But it's not the infrastructure. It's the infrastructure now, as you mentioned, with cloud and everything else. You can build that on the fly. And in fact, in the banking world, I keep on referencing the fact that there are virtually any solution provider now serving the banking industry has a way to do a workaround around your bad technology. But they're going to deploy it in a new way. And they're going to deploy it so employees have a better access to it. They're going to deploy it faster and easier. Because when you talk about the difference between one company and the other, it's going to be speed and simplicity. Either the speed and simplicity of how you make my life easier or the speed and simplicity of how you deploy your solution in different ways. And, and Jerry, again, I think you were the first podcast that broke the rules of how long we wanted to go. And by the way, <laughs> this is a credit, not a criticism. I, I think we broke uh, records even that you set the last time because it's something I, I'm obviously very passionate about. What you're writing about is really good. For those of you in the audience, first of all, pick up his first book, The Technology Fallacy. It is a, it's a textbook for how you need to do business. Make sure you get on the list to pick up a second book in September. But even more importantly, in the meantime, look up on this website. Give it to us again, Jerry. Prof Kane, P-R-O-F-K-A-N-E.com. And make sure you look under his name on the MIT Sloan Management Review because I repurpose a lot of his content for what it is in banking. And, and he knows that I, I will quote him often, but I, I think... He's got a great global view of what's going on in the marketplace. And Jerry, again, thank you so much for today's time. A pleasure as always. You know, what a great discussion with Jerry Kane. You know, we in the past, we had our longest interview ever at that time with Jerry. And I think we've broken another record today. And I hope you stayed on for the whole broadcast because he has so much information about what's going on in the marketplace, what's important and what's not, what's critical versus urgent, and success stories. I really urge you to pick up the book, The Technology Fallacy, that was written by him and three other co-authors and, and to put yourself on the list for the his new book coming up in September. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, just raised a top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our recent research we're doing on digital transformation, innovation, customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banker Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leo Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, embrace change, take risks, and disrupt yourself. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.